Happy Easter, and welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin, and I hope that Holy Week and Easter provided you with hope and renewal as the new life of spring erupts around us. Reading from the Book of Revelation are commonly called upon in Christian churches during the weeks following Easter. The Book of Revelation is avoided for most of the year by many preachers because its interpretation is controversial and easy to bend to fit personal agendas. Now I choose to read from Revelation and talk about it this week because I find it relevant to our current situation, particularly how the church and people of faith can respond to the war in Ukraine. And that includes the people of Ukraine. Today, I think it's time for Revelation. The first reading I have chosen for today is Revelation 1, 4-8. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and his who is to come, the Almighty. Here ends the reading. Let me provide a little background for this passage before we begin. John, the author, was the leader of several young Christian communities in what is now western Turkey. He names the towns of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, as the recipients recipients of his letter or sermon. John is writing from the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, where he had been exiled, not far away from modern-day Turkey. He was writing near the end of the first century, during the time that Roman emperors like Nero and Domitian, who ruled the Mediterranean world, demanded to be worshipped as gods. The churches underwent cycles of repression and persecution. John's subversive message encouraging the worship of God in Jesus Christ got him into trouble and led to this exile. Were he living and carrying out his missionary work in Russia today, in the presence of our current day tyrants, his message most likely would have gotten him killed. John writes to these Christian communities who are faced with how to be true to their faith in Jesus while living under Roman tyranny. 
He is sending them instructions on how to survive the challenges that lay ahead, including more persecution, being corrupted by Roman society, and falling away from the faith altogether. In his instructions, he warns of the bad things that await those who fail to remain faithful and to the tyrants who oppress them. He also puts forward a message of hope to those who are truly oppressed, persecuted, feeling powerless. They will eventually experience the triumph of the kingdom of God. Now, at the outset, I would like to point out that John was not speaking with you and me in mind. He was speaking to a group of Christian communities at a particular point in history, a particularly difficult time in history. He is writing to the oppressed, the powerless, and the persecuted. And as I said before, he's warning them not to cave in to the oppressive powers of the world and become a part of it. And he's giving them encouragement that God will help them through this time. The Lamb who speaks through John, who we interpret to be Christ, is the Alpha, the beginning of the new order of creation, and will be the Omega, the end point of salvation history. We are mistaken when we think that somehow John foresaw, foresaw our situation and is sending us a cryptic or coded message that he somehow penetrated the mist of the future to help us. In that scenario, we modern Christians in America are the oppressed minority to whom John refers. Some interpreters and preachers even go so far as to puzzle out predictions of exactly what the future holds for us. Those predictions inevitably prove to be bogus or self-deluded. Now, that doesn't mean that the message of Revelation is irrelevant to us. It isn't. But that we need to look at it from a different perspective. We need to puzzle out what John is saying to those people in his seven congregations before we can place ourselves in the narrative. Christians in the 21st century America are not a repressed minority. If anything, we are a privileged majority. We face challenges, of course. And the main challenges that we face is apathy and lack of commitment to faith that abandons religious principles and feeds a growing secularism. There is an ongoing struggle to balance church and state, but our constitutional government has been up to the task of protecting the first clause of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no laws respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Theologian Elizabeth Schusler Fioranza says this about how we read Revelation, and sometimes wrongly. Something very strange happens when this text is appropriated by readers in a comfortable, powerful majority community. It becomes a gold mine for paranoid fantasies and for those who want to preach revenge and destruction. 
The early churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, on the other hand, faced a real and constant existential threat from, the Rome, from Rome and the other world powers. It was not a done deal that the church would even survive the ordeal. John knew that their existence depended upon how they lived in the world. His message of survival was that the community find their freedom in sacrificial love, nonviolence, and patient endurance. In other words, in faithfulness to the way of Jesus. So instead of turning to Revelation for words of comfort and assurance for ourselves, let's look what it says to a truly oppressed and persecuted people, specifically the people of Ukraine. First of all, there is a call for the people of Ukraine to stand firm. For some, that will mean taking up defensive arms in the face of an invasion, even with the likelihood of death. Untold early Christians were slaughtered before Rome subsided as the major power in the ancient world. Thousands of Ukrainians have answered that call and have already given their lives. Their lives lost are a sign of their courageous sacrificial love. John says, have courage and we honor them. I am amazed at the courage courageous acts of the Ukrainian people. One of the iconic images of the war was provided by a group of 13 guards on the small Snake Island in the Black Sea at the beginning of the war. Confronted by the insurmountable power of a Russian battleship, the guards were called to surrender their post. In a now famous expletive-laced reply, not suitable for repeating here, the men defied the Russians in an act that would most certainly lead to their death. Their eventual fate is uncertain, but they will be healed as heroes, living or dead. These examples of courage and sacrifice in no way diminishes the millions of refugees who have fled the violence and terror perpetrated by the Russian troops. Jesus stands in and among the fleeing masses of dispossessed, especially the children and the elderly who have lost all that they hold dear. He suffers with them, cries with them, and mourns with them. You may even hear him, that's Jesus, cry out in a lament, My God, my God, why have you forsaken them? While we celebrate Easter, millions of Ukrainians are living through the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, the cross, and the darkened tomb. These fleeing masses could rightly be described by this further passage from Revelation. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down in their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat them down, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here's where we come to the promise to the people of Ukraine and all the oppressed and persecuted people of the earth. The promise that this holy community is destined for salvation and God will wipe away all the tears from the eyes. And by the way, when I say holy community, I'm not just referring to the church. Christ stands with the persecuted and the oppressed wherever and whoever they are. But the promise of salvation remains unfulfilled today. Eight weeks into this war, the killing and the violence continue. And here is where you and I come in the story. Those of us who live outside the immediate danger of the war zone are called to stand with them. John is giving us a new way to live in the world. He is calling us to take part in a great uprising. Instead of being consumed by fear or despair and feeling impotent and hateful, we are called to join those saints in white around the throne of God in revolution, revelation. As one theologian puts it, it feels like an uprising, an uprising of hope, not hate, an uprising armed with love, not weapons, an uprising that shouts a joyful promise of life and peace, not angry threats of hostility and death. It is an uprising of outstretched hands, not clenched fists. It's the someday we have always dreamed of, emerging in the present, rising up among us and within us. It's so different from what we expected, so much better. This is what it means to be alive, truly alive. This is what it means to be en route, walking the road to a new and better day. Let's tell the others the Lord is risen. And so we will continue to support the people of Ukraine because it's the right thing to do. We will provide them with aid and open arms 
to the refugees, even at a great cost to ourselves. We will pray for them and cry with them. Most of all, we will not lose hope until this great tribulation has ended. Now, I don't want to disregard the threat that we face in the West, the renewed proliferation of nuclear weapons under the control of tyrants and dictators around the globe puts us all within the range of destruction on an apocalyptic scale. And so we are called to stand courageously. We too are called to stand firmly in love in the face of hatred. And we too are promised the day when God will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. It's time for us to hear and live into the revelation of the eternal Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you. May God walk with you in life's journey through good and bad. May God wipe away every tear from your eye and give you hope. And may God bring peace among the nations.